I want those smothered in onions, all right? Hey, punch E5. Karma, and I'm Ava Z. Hello, I'm Nate. Um, welcome to the podcast where we talk about movies and if they're any good. We will not be answering the question of whether movies are good, but we will tell you some movies that are good. I think we have two good movies that we're talking about today so like we're doing uh the first episode of liquid movie karma introducing our first series uh which we're calling host selects the favorites a running series in which each of us picks a favorite movie uh has each other watch it and then we come here to talk about it and you come here to listen yeah so today we exchanged two of our all-time favorite movies uh, in the form of John Sayles' 1983 Baby, It's You, and Greg Araki's 1997 Nowhere. So we're going with this chronologically, so we're going to start with Baby, It's You, which I'm supposed to introduce. We changed some plans, but I'm going to improvise. So... Uh, Baby It's You is a, as Eva already said, a period romance that takes place in 1966 and 67, but was made in 1983. Uh, it is directed and written by American independent filmmaker John Sayles, who has a long and storied career um, in this, one of his earlier films. Uh, he is telling a story that is based upon the life of collaborator and producer Amy Robinson, who herself, uh, like the the lead character of Baby It's You, played by Rosanna Arquette, Jill Rosen, uh, grew up in New Jersey in a lower uh, middle class household uh, as an aspiring young actress. Uh, who got who fell in love with the riffraff uh played by uh the romantic counterpart joseph spano playing the sheik spano is that how you pronounce it uh i don't know i i think it's vincent spano what did i say joseph spano oh sweet jesus yeah vincent spano my apologies I don't know what to say. <laughs> well, I think one of the things that was notable for me about Baby It's You on this first viewing was, like, how rhythmically distinct it is from, like, mainstream teen romances, like, comparable, like, sort of period romances um, of the time. And basically, like, 
in perpetuity because it's so unhurried. It's so patient. Like, there is this, like, patience to its sense of cinematic time that really allows the interiority of these two to unfold. And, like, it is such a deeply interior movie for as much as it is embedded in strong sense of class and social positioning. Well, yeah, and and so, like, the patience that the film has is also reflected in this kind of, like, dual structure of the film, that it's unlike the vast majority of uh, teenage uh, comedies. Sales shows us the meeting and drama and romance of the two romantic leads as it develops through high school. But at the middle way point of the film, uh, he flashes forward, not through the summer, to the first year of the female romantic leads experience at Sarah Lawrence College studying acting. And simultaneously, um, the male romantic lead is living in Miami. Uh, lip-syncing Frank Sinatra songs from jukeboxes for elderly people uh, in a lame club. Uh, so I think like what's one aspect of the film that I find really interesting is the way that it it seems to vulture and rely upon many of the tropes and like common themes and ideas of the teen comedy as it was realized conventionally in Hollywood, um, but uh, subverts those by, as you said, returning to the interiority of the characters, not placing them along only like a generic track for like gags and jokes, <laughs> but uh, incorporating those while reflecting the ways in which these are actually reflective aspects of teenage life that in adulthood and in our reflecting on our adolescence and the past come to have new meaning, not only like our own personal experiences, but the way that those experiences are reflected in uh, the kind of like jokey reproduction of adolescence in Hollywood cinema and how they come to mean new and different things. So like, for instance, in the film, uh, in the high school first half and first portion, uh, the Sheik kidnaps Jill and one of her friends to uh, persuade her to take him back um, before prom. Uh in this first uh, reiteration of this experience in the film, it is played as kind of like adventure, as somewhat of a joke. Um, but of course, like kidnapping is like incredibly serious and traumatic. But inside the whirlwind of, of adolescence, which can be incredibly uh, seductive and um, totalizing, uh, it doesn't register to Jill uh, at that moment as something that um, she should be concerned about. Moreover, 
it reflects the world that surrounds her living as a lower middle class uh, student in a very economically uh, uh, stratified but diverse working class neighborhood in Trenton, New Jersey um, at an integrated high school. Um, So she has these kinds of like broad experiences of human interpersonal relationships and then when she uh, leaves her home uh, to, uh, uh, to pursue her dreams uh, at college, uh, she discovers uh, a cohort who are now exceptionally wealthier than she is, um, whose lived experiences are perhaps uh, more cohesive to one another. And whereas she, uh, a working-class, first-generation Italian-American, might have found himself as an outsider at um, his and Jill's high school, Jill is now placed into a position as as an economic outsider um, at a bourgeois university and all-girls school. Um, And these kind of, like... uh, inversions and bifurcations and like dualistic reflections in which the meaning of one side of something transforms and changes uh, as it's uh, like reflected in the mirror or as it um, moves through time uh, is kind of like the essence of baby it's you uh which, you know, like the song, the Shirelles song, it's, it's Baby, It's You, um, uh, kind of like somewhat cheekily, maybe very in a very corny way, asking like that question of the characters in the film, like who are they and who will they become and what will it have meant to be who they were once they've changed? Um, so like the kidnapping scene, uh, in the high school, which is played as adventure later on the film, uh, she tells it as a joke to uh, her classmates at Sarah Lawrence. But then, when she is in kind of an uh, like a avant-gardeist experimental acting class, um, she's relaying the experience to her teacher, discussing it as a uh, as a as a trauma, as something that uh, pissed her off and frightened her. Uh, and then the drama teacher <laughs> returns with, uh, is that all you feel? And Rosanna Arquette, who plays this character, Jill Rosen, just kind of like totally emptied um, by this experience, doesn't know what to say. Um, and I think that kind of like strangeness and ambiguity um, is kind of very important, reflects on this kind of internalized experience that you were talking about and really eschews the idea that Baby It's You is is just a teen comedy. I think that kind of idea of ambiguity is especially like, is kind of taken to its most extreme form in the film at the end, which is like this totally ambiguous recapitulation of a very like tropic teen romance moment with which is bookended on one side by like a ferocious set of arguments 
And so it's like refusal to resolve or to like explain away the complexities of life as it actually is, which I find so compelling here. It's the idea that like by taking these tropes and putting them in a context in which there is a certain sense of not like psychological realism so much as like honesty to the sort of social and psychological like effects of the tropes that like they can be given new meanings and new meaningfulness uh beyond what they were capable of in their previous context yeah 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 absolutely it's, it's kind of like this like really bittersweet and sad like chintziness of love as uh we've come to receive it through um, all of the tropes of uh, teen romance. That statement to me rings true, especially of the use of like girl pop songs, like girl group, like old timey, like of the era sort of pop songs. Yeah, yeah. The film is is uh, comes from the same titled Sherelle's song, "Baby It's You" from the sixties. Yeah. yeah, and it's like uh, a deployment of these songs. And of the, like, emotive textures that they bring, that's neither fully ironic nor fully sincere. It hangs in this very uncomfortable, precarious space between the two. Yeah, and, and it's it's an uh, entirely period-accurate soundtrack, excluding uh, the anachronism of Bruce Springsteen which plays only at the entrances of the romantic male lead. Uh, and then so, like, yeah, this kind of, like, ironic deployment of the period music and its, like, saccharine, um, very youthful nature. And then perhaps this more um, atomized, personal, working-class voice in Bruce Springsteen uh creates yeah this kind of like fascinating tension which i think is the subject of the film the subject of its conversation but also like the nature of uh the romance between jill and chic who are these kind of like star-crossed lovers uh from the wrong families i think too that the the ironic kind of nature is complicated by this undercurrent of genuineness like it is like the simultaneous recognition of their status as pop cultural like instruments as tools uh for reaching a mass audience and as something which can be like brought into a person's life as something with personal meaning and like personal importance due to its place in like a life history and i think that's like that's what prevents the movie from being like a very acrid sort of like satirical take is that it is also recognizing and able to like sit there with the solipsism of these teenagers and recognize it as both frivolous and important it's it's to me like dialectically like kind of synthesizing those things yeah i mean it's i really think it's like a super important 
and beautiful like rec- reclamation of popular culture for the people who live under it um, without much choice. I mean, this is like the um, the saturation of capitalist popular culture that predominates all of our lives. And so, uh, especially for a film, which is a period piece that is looking at the 60s, the kind of um, diffuse, spread out cultural reproduction of the 21st century doesn't look anything like the the kind of homogenous and conforming lives of teenagers going to suburban schools um, in the United States uh, in the 1960s or not really suburban yet, right? Like uh, mixed economic and racial uh, working and middle-class American towns. And I think like sales is like incredibly sensitive to the ways in which these material realities are shaping and changing the lives of his characters it makes perfect sense too because the film is based on the real life adolescence and experiences of producer collaborator amy robinson so i think like the film has the kind of interior richness and this kind of like psychological realism and this kind of psychological realism precisely because it is about real people and like real serious and honest people are making it and reflecting on the things that they remember and that like they care about and that like shape who they are. Uh, And I think it's like weird that for instance, the art house cinema uh, can't seem in the same way to easily or convincingly tell the stories of the lives of these people, which are overwhelmingly like the vast majority of people in this country. (laughs) Well, I think it makes sense when you consider like the overwhelmingly bourgeois nature of so much experimental in art house cinema, like in terms of production, in terms of who gets to make this like cinema have it be widely distributed enough to gain like subcultural recognition yeah and then to be like referenced and reproduced in media that is being consumed by more and more people and and so i mean like the film i think is so hyper aware of this um uh you see it in the fact that Sheik is kind of like a figure of a bygone era. He looks like he's in the rat pack. He's obsessed with Frank Sinatra. You know, he's like a decade or two behind. He wears his hair like slicked back. He's a person who's like out of time and out of place. Um these are perhaps precisely the reasons that Jill Jill is so attracted to him in the first place um but tragically for his character uh they make not only uh like their romance impossible but seemingly um his movement forward from his experiences in high school into um like what could be seen as a productive adult life um very relatable (laughs) Yeah, like brief moment of novelty of like 
that he manages to like project for himself is built from like old standards it's built from this outdated like uh cultural like synthesis that he is embodying and thus it just keeps getting further in the past and the novelty that it had in high school when it was like something that could be reintroduced um to perhaps people who didn't have the same kind of cultural memory as the preceding generation it it just wears off and he's left as like a relic like as a youthful relic whereas jill is sort of in perpetual motion as she tries to assimilate herself uh into this like bourgeois milieu and like conform to the sort of taste around her she is changing her wardrobe her personality her relationship with her own history based on what is uh what is fashionable there as a means of like gaining social acceptance and social mobility and maybe and maybe not just what is fashionable but what works but i mean you're absolutely right it even is literalized like there's a scene the scene where they're playing pool and uh her fellow student is like criticizing what she's wearing essentially and saying like yeah we could like go to the city and get you something that'll work um this kind of like trading places of of jill's fear that she could become this kind of like standing still figure lost uh to like an old time uh with with the sheik uh who perhaps throughout the entirety of the film jill never really understands until maybe uh when they have sex i i think she kind of she doesn't care to understand like for most of it like she is so so unable to see outside of herself basically until that moment when she is finally like displaced and desperate enough to need another human being in the same way that the sheik seems to like need her yeah but it's not but it's like not the same way either right because it's not precisely the same it's this very momentary alignment yeah i mean it's i uh i find this to be like maybe like the saddest and like most tragic kind of tension in the entire film uh which is like uh the question uh like in the second round of that ferocious fight at the finale of the film the sheik whose real name is we come to uh know is albert asks her like why she came to miami and i think going back to this kind of like running themes of ambig- ambiguity uh certainly it has to do with yeah this displacement that she's newly experiencing in this um kind of like uh bourgeois academic environment where she no longer uh excels in exactly the same way she did uh back in working class trent new jersey um and is coming up against all kinds of uh cultural differences and uh and uh irregularities yeah i mean i i think it's this displacement um and this kind of like longing for the comfort of what she had lost um having left trenton 
but I also think there is this this kind of like cynical introduction to the world of sexuality that her kind of like middle class innocence and tranquility doesn't accommodate um she is a fundamentally like sexually inexperienced character whereas the sheik is uh presented as somebody who is sexually adventurous and promiscuous um and dangerous i think it's important though to keep in mind that like she is sexually inadventurous not because of personal choice but because it is culturally disallowed like the one girl who is seen as easy tries to kill herself in one of like the like most striking scenes like and she's like looking at these other girls who are still as she is like has bandaged wrists like still looking at her as like a slut and she's asking them if it's so wrong that she like enjoys having sex like it was seen that kind of sexual and romantic role was seen as fundamentally masculine oh yeah yeah i mean the 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 duality um between the sexual environments of sarah lawrence college when jill goes there and yeah her working class neighborhood back in trenton like it could not be more distinct the social pressure and like the kind of like misogynistic containment of feminine sexuality uh prevents her from having these kind of sexual adventures which she i think in her adolescence is like substituting through different uh, other adventures uh, the way in which she like attends to the experience of being kidnapped as an adolescence contraposed to the way she attends to it at university um so there are these like really fascinating reversals and it's not the it's not that what i mean to say about miami is that she has a a kind of like enforced sexual anxiety because of the imposition of the kind of uh, bourgeois misogynist culture which has produced part of her identity and then so when she finds herself in a kind of like um, pre-1970s um, sexual awakening culture at Sarah Lawrence um, her introduction to that world is not as easy as she would hope and she sees in Sheik a familiarity and a comfort in which she can explore her sexuality for the first time um, before she makes this call and comes to see Sheik in Miami there's like a scene where her um, and some of her classmates are meeting uh, out of camp, off campus, uh, like college boys, and they're all at a bar. And Jill is like getting completely hammered um, because of this, I think, overwhelming social anxiety she has seeing herself as, as newly not fitting in and probably anticipating what the social expectations are in this like new world (laughs) yeah no and she like has this very clear sense of like disconnection from the like discourse that the other three students there are able to hold like she is 
totally outside the rhythms of their conversation and then ends up vomiting until she goes home yeah she's like trying to talk about like movies she's talking about like a marlon brando movie and like frank sinatra who is you know really the chic but yeah very relatable content personally (laughs) okay um do you want to like kind of wrap our thoughts about baby it's you um yeah 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 i guess um Oh yeah, how did you like how did you like the Michael Bauhaus cinematography? It's it's not obviously as like showy as his other work and I can't say I was watching the highest quality rip, but it's it's a gorgeous movie. Like in a very quiet, like very unobtrusive way. It's um some of the ways that like Rosanna Arquette is lit. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think it's, like, a, a very, like, visually understated, but, like, uh, clearly and especially in its details, like, gorgeously realized. And, like, the costuming is so, so nice. Um, I don't know. I like even, like, lame 1960s fashion. And uh, Vincent Spano is the chic is, like, without a doubt, and, like, jokes are made in the movie, but, like, incredibly well-dressed and uh, unbelievably handsome yeah vincent spano when he has like the tousled like messy hair <laughs> yeah yeah i mean uh yeah there's like no question uh why he's uh seen as uh, a good catch <laughs> in the adolescent mind of Jill rosen mm-hmm. uh but then you know uh, discarded uh, as incompatible in the end of the film as well as Jill um, I mean yeah e- each of them fail um, very tragically to understand the interior lives of each other uh, to understand like why they've made the decisions that they've had you know so like Jill's always trying to go to college and uh, Vincent Spano is always trying to get out of the prison of high school. It's like hard to watch in some places because of that failure to reconcile with the experiences of the other. It, it like, actually, I think, which yeah, oh, continues yeah, really. Like as much as that final scene suggests some some kind of like romantic moment, like recaptured and some kind of understanding it is still fundamentally like very melancholy yeah this actually it actually kind of reminds me of the conversation that we had about uncut gems on twitter that was kind of evolving there was like this notion that um julia and howard from uncut gems were in a like very loving relationship but like it was toxic like i actually think baby it's you is like the good example of maybe this this idea that some people are seeing in uncut gems of of a kind of like toxic relationship that is nonetheless like genuinely loving so sad but yeah just to close up i think baby it's you has like maybe one of the best jerry lewis shout outs ever oh i'm a jerry lewis neophyte so like 
I did not catch it. Well, no, it's not. It's not anything. It's not a visual reference. Uh, when the Sheik takes Jill back to his apartment in Miami, uh, he says he like rationalizes his job at that lame club, uh, lip syncing the jukebox by saying, "That's how Jerry Lewis got started." And, like, what he's actually referring to is, like, a staple of not only, like, the Martin and Lewis stage act, but also Jerry Lewis's film career, uh, in which he lip syncs songs um, or, like, mimes them comically. But it's always this kind of, like, loving but ironic... Um, this kind of relationship that uh, that reflects much of the movie that we were, we were already discussing. Um, this kind of like ironic distance between Jerry Lewis, the performer, uh, the kind of like off Dean Martin, the kind of like weird Dean Martin, and uh, Jerry Lewis, like his authentic self, which is, you know, uh, might might not be real, might not be even a thing. Um, and it's, it's like this kind of sad thing for for the sheik to have said because he thinks he's justifying uh what's happening in his life right now like his music career is gonna like come off but it's like jerry lewis is not a celebrity for singing frank sinatra like he's not a crooner like he's making fun of crooners and being like i'm a simp i wish i was a crooner (laughs) yeah love jerry lewis too but yeah uh do you want to intro Nowhere? I wrote a transition into uh, Nowhere. It's very short. I'll give it a go. Okay. Okay. So in John Sayles' teen pastiche comedy drama, Baby It's You, the 1950s are a lame but macho stabilizing, stabilizing memory, and the 1960s were mostly tender bullshit. Now they're long gone. Since then, we've endured the marginally not-as-bad 1970s and 1980s, leading us into the beginning of the end of the beginning of the end of all time, in the middle of the hyper-normal 1990s. Long before the world literally ended in 2008, when some guy, while standing on a floating ice cream truck, shot an RPG at a blimp that Kevin Smith was on, Long before that violent rupture in space and time, in 1995, there was Gregoraki's Nowhere. So this movie, Gregoraki's Nowhere, is for me probably the greatest queer movie, the greatest gay movie. And it is sort of this sprawling kind of portrait of a hyper-exaggerated, kind of cartoonishly deformed uh, Los Angeles, like, queer counterculture that follows uh, the sort of travails of all of these different college-aged youths. The central focus is on uh, Dark, James Duvall's uh, Dark, who is sort of a uh, lost, driftless film student who's dissatisfied with his relationship uh, with his girlfriend, who is, like, polyamorous, free-loving and everything, and his uh, attraction to another boy, Montgomery. Um, And those are sort of the, the main 
like points of his arc, but it follows pretty much every character in the cast to at least some part of their story. Like it is very disparate. It is very patchwork in its own way. And it just kind of sweeps up this whole like generation of countercultural and mainstream symbolism into like a frenzy, like this libidinal frenzy of jokiness, of of violence, of like self-destruction and drug abuse and like AIDS even. Uh, it is sort of this like totalizing uh, document of a time and a place. Hell yeah. So what did you think? Oh, I loved Nowhere. Um, I, I mean, I think it's like, it's interesting that Baby It's You spans uh, these kind of like two stages of growing up and takes a lot of time to unfold its story. Whereas kind of Nowhere sees in the snapshot of a single day and night um, the total lived experience of very many young people and like very many different kinds of people uh in a way that's not like it's like hard to it's hard to express exactly how serious i think the film is in the way in in the way that it's also like incredibly jokey uh ends essentially like on a punchline but even in this kind of like hyper mediated um very uh, ostentatious presentation of Los Angeles, uh, like a Rocky, like slows the film down at several like inc- like key moments, and essentially like I think through a certain device is asking his audience as a character uh, like a televangelist on a uh, on a TV screen is asking his audience to do something to imagine a better world a better place a heaven and i i actually was like uh so like overwhelmed by that sequence um oh it's an extraordinary sequence especially in the way that it encompasses that duality that you were talking about in that it is an extended punchline and it is played deathly straight contextually and I think that is so, so smart about the way that, like, this sort of millenarian conservative impulse, this conservative apocalyptic moral impulse can be translated into, like, the desolation that these teens who are, like, on the margins of the margins, who are, like, abused and who are, like, you know, dying of addiction, they see in that apocalyptic prophecy a reflection of the lack of a future that they like can perceive for themselves they they are hyper aware of the ending they are about to experience that this is a temporary respite that often turns sour anyways already like it is perceptible it's embodied in not just the preacher but also in the alien who comes down and starts vaporizing them like all of this conspiracist sort of conservative fear-mongering is coming true. And it is a, uh, a kind of sideways like acknowledgement of the fact that those moralist ideologies 
destroyed this sort of queer subculture that Araki is like so faithfully like interested in. Sorry for rambling. No, 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 no. Like everything you said was like so interesting. I'm like trying to like uh, place it all and organize it. I'm still like quite high. <laughs> um, but yeah, like um, it is. It's like an apocalypse film. I, I think it's really interesting too because. Like, you know, we start with, I think, an apocalyptic film with our podcast. Like, Southland Tales, I feel, is like, you know, some part of the essence of this podcast. Uh, it's in the title. But characters in this film, each of them, are having some realization, some expression of the end of the world. Whether it be with Dark, who's having, like, premonitions he's like seeing this alien around town before some kind of like culminating violence occurs um and he's expressing uh the belief that something bad will happen or that the 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 end of the world will come or uh you have mel who's like pleading with dark to be present and to pay attention to like the love between them and the thing that they're sharing um because they will grow old and ugly and they'll no longer be able to share it. Um, There's this kind of sense in the film that whatever time there was, it's already gone. And yeah, I mean, so like with the preacher sequence, the characters like Bart and Egg, Bart who uh, seems to be like an opiate addict, um, whose boyfriend is like desperately um, asking him to to kick the habit, um, and uh, yeah, it has these shades of the AIDS crisis. This assumption that uh, he's sick already, um, and that nobody is helping him or can help him. And then there's Egg, who uh, is like a high school student who. Um, meets this teen idol at a cafe and then falls in love and is horribly uh, trapped and raped and flees back to her home unable to process or understand like this horrific violence that's occurred and each of them Araki is cutting between their experiences of seeing the same a live like televangelist broadcast um, right before each of them commit suicide which is then like played uh, as a sort of punchline to the sequence uh, with the parents uh, at their wits ends uh, to a level of uh, disconnected absurdity uh, like Harold and Maud-esque or something there's the total like sense of like just absolutely no communication being able to occur between the parents and the children. There is a whole like just void that is disconnecting these generations that is obviously like literalized in some like details like Bart's parents only seem to speak German, but like the the parodic kind of it, it I, I was I, I was wondering is do you think Bart is an exchange student? I don't know. I, it doesn't seem to like he doesn't even seem to be positioned as like a student. Oh I mean, yeah. There is like 
this sense of like unreality though to the whole like fabric the social fabric that is holding them together like nobody is really like bound by the idea of a collegiate setting or of a scene even like of a like single like countercultural scene it is very much a uh, a disparate group of people in a way that suggests also i think the eventual like dissolution of of the social group here like that these people often have fundamentally nothing in common and nothing holding them together yeah uh yeah and uh like each each of uh some auxiliary characters um the siblings of uh the two people who ended their who, who like chose to end their lives get phone calls or receive the news of their deaths over the phone and like with bart it's his boyfriend cowboy and it's really strange because yeah like bart's parents are like always uh, speaking german he's like on the phone like saying like speak english speak english and cowboy is like of a latin america the uh, uh guillermo diaz the actor is of like a latin american descent so there's this kind of there's this like like, yeah identity between the text and the meta text and like (sighs) what is visually signaled like there's this almost schizophrenic sense to it well and it's the the meaning too is the the suggestion that the parents do speak english they won't though like they won't talk to cowboy like and he's so upset because he can hear it in their voices he knows that something is wrong and iraqi like plays a totally unrelated well not totally unrelated in the kind of like diegesis of the film audio of someone like screaming which is like clearly not um supposed to be read as the literal voices of the parents um he's like this monstrous charlie brown device where every time someone gets onto the phone the other end is either silence or like screams yeah through the phone nothing is communicated it's all like transformed in these like monstrous like horrific ways honestly it's like yeah, I mean this. Uh, this was the second Gregoraki film that I'd ever seen. I saw Mysterious Skin when I was in high school, and I liked it, but it didn't like drive me to pursue anything else. But now that you've like recommended this film and I watched it, like I have to see the rest of them because like this movie is incredible. <laughs> Gregoraki's '90s work is like I think one of the peaks of the medium. Like, Mysterious Skin is strong. I think a lot of the stuff he does after the 90s is, like, is good. Mm-hmm. But he, he never recaptures the, like, same kind of pinnacle that he reached here. And I think part of that is because his films accept being of this time so much, like, this specific time, that he is able to sort of, like, invert and fossilize uh, a specific moment and then that sort of ability disappears when he loses the same relationship to the culture. That's why people can't 
just copy Iraqi style and have it be meaningful in the present day because his what makes him special is not about necessarily the content of the films and in of themselves it's the relational kind of uh trajectory from the historical moment to his style that is what makes him so unique and that is what makes him so worthwhile is that kind of relative position versus like simply copying the surface level visual elements which are in and of themselves quite pleasurable but would not be as special if not for what they like signified yeah so like okay like that's like such a uh i think that's so interestingly interestingly contrasted to baby it's you but setting that aside like um i think we've been talking a lot about some of the darker elements of the film and some of the more like uh upsetting more upsetting meditations and it's kind of apocalyptic nature but i also saw the film as a kind of like bizarre utopian stage like the like the uh like the calm before the storm like before the world ends um each of these characters is living in some kind of um exuberance excess they like love to be alive to me that's exactly iraqi's genius here though is to deflate the utopian nostalgic notion that this is a this is a peak to be reclaimed that like hedonistic excess was in some way like an apotheosis of what counterculture could do i see it less as uh utopian and more as rotting from within these problems are uh already like present within the culture itself because it is still positioned with a world around it one of the most brilliant like pieces of the movie is the set design which pushes beyond the purely mimetic or expressive to be like these like little bubble worlds that can only exist as like perfect externalizations of their characters internal psychologies that have no relationship to the spaces around them literal even the windows don't look out the windows don't look out into the world they look out into the void or into space it is about this the way that that kind of excessive ecstatic sexual and like cultural moment survived on a solipsism that was unsustainable on an individualism that was unsustainable in part because the ethical ideals that they were moving towards like symbolized in mel were contradictory like it was individualism and anti-individualism were both total values there but but that's so like there's a scene when dark tells mel that he feels like she completes him and you know she kind of like uh discards it and kind of like jokingly um patronizes him but he's being serious he's being sincere um and I think, like, the concept, the, like, kind of, like, disaffected, um, uh, overwhelmingly solipsistic and uh, fearful of the, the future kind of uh, world that Dark is living in makes it very hard for him 
<laughs> within the bounds of his life and within the bounds of his relationship with Mel to enjoy himself at any time. Like, you know, he's seen this alien. This alien is going to, like, uh, kill him or kill somebody he loves. Something bad is going to happen. And um, the kind of, like, idealistic, utopian vision that Mel is able to possess is incredibly attractive to Dark because it's it, it soothes that like fearful fearful side of him, um, but he understands that that's a perspective that he doesn't he hasn't been able to uh, uh, absorb in a kind of like collective way represented through like Mel's polyamory, but Mel doesn't understand that she she lacks a certain kind of uh, sensitivity and interpersonal attention that I think Dark has. Yeah, yeah, no, she, like, talks about sex and love being shared in the same breath, but we get the sense that she doesn't understand these relationships in a particularly emotive fashion that they are almost purely sexual and not really romantic at all. So, like, to even call it polyamory seems a misnomer. It's more like some kind of free sexuality, like libidinal interchangeability. That's sort of what I was referring to with, like, the idea that these ideologies are inherently contradictory, Mm. that, like, Dark's need for another person is like contradictory with his own solipsism and like narcissism and jealousy but at the same time Mel's just total like free love kind of notions are contradictory with their own insensitivity yeah oh like I mean I think like I think it's uh I'm, I'm still struggling with like this idea about the utopianism because the world of nowhere is totally attractive to me in like every way um so it is a hangout film um it is visually ostentatious it's a great hangout movie it's amazing i get what you're saying about the utopianism because it is built like it is built on the like tropic sort of uh like moving parts of the popular media of the decade of utopian popular media of the decade that was like meant for mass consumption but i think what really pushes it beyond mere hangout movie is that it like drives those tropes beyond like anything that like anyone who created them could have imagined into this absolutely grotesque like vision of sexual excess uh consumptive excess like self-harm and like self-obsession beyond even what the the teen comedies the teen like tv comedies that it is building itself from could have ever imagined and really is about the end point of that like recognizing both the value of it in that some genuine like anxieties are sublimated into this pablum and also moving beyond it like moving towards a critique of it that allows us to like build on that um to move like forward and that is where i see the apocalyptic elements coming in 
Well, yeah, it, also, it has like an authentic nihilism. I think maybe before the mass culture was even able to a- appropriate it in a in a way that was marketable. I mean, I guess like I feel like maybe I don't know enough about the the mass culture of the early '90s, but I feel like. Uh, a rocky here is like you said before it was an attention to a world that he was living in a time in which he was living that it can't be reproduced he himself even struggles in his later work at uh, reproducing the period it's such a responsive and sensitive film to everything that that must have been going on especially to to Iraqi and the people he knew best. Yeah, it is it is a I think loving movie in addition to a critical one like and a funny it is one. a movie that's suffused with like a genuine love for the like real people that these archetypes correspond to. And that is I think why it is part of why it is so attractive on a superficial level, why it draws people who don't necessarily appreciate like the aesthetic richness of it, the like textual richness of it, but who just see like the affection in it, which I think is is beautiful in its own right. We just like even just like the candy colored lighting and just yeah, the elaborate set designs. You have like Bart has a room that has like um like typeface uh offset like giant typeface offset that's like spreading across the, the walls um do you you yeah, this suicidal poetry that he has like song lyrics like running across his walls like just surrounding him enveloping him or like eggs room which is like this oh i don't even know how to describe it like it's a just flower bed flowers, but like they're sickly. It almost reminds me of uh, the exteriors in Eraserhead, which are like these ugly, kind of obviously like fake flowers that are meant to signal, you know, the the rancidness of conservative uh, idealistic notions. And I think they perform a different function here, but like that is the immediate visual reference for me. Yeah, yeah, no, like the the flout, like when she climbs in through her bedroom window, she steps onto a flower bed um, that looks like a fake flower bed, but like one that would be, you know, planted outside of a home. So it's like the outside is in, and then when she other favorite details, yeah. Everybody enters through the window. Fuck yeah, that's that that's the, that Dawson's Creek shit right there. Like also just the home does not function as like a unit. Oh like yeah. the rooms exist separately and can only be entered from the outside. Like they are closed off almost hermetically from the rest of the house. Oh, also like maybe one of the best shower scenes of all time and it opens the film. Yeah, yeah. It's not a shower, it's a shower room that is larger than the bathroom itself. And it's pure white. It's like this very abstract, like, 
uh, like psychological space almost like the recognition that this is like a time for like him to project his fantasies outward that it gives him a blank canvas to do so well it's yeah i mean and it's it's privacy it's like masturbation it's self-reproduction um he's becoming being projecting and imagining himself and then you know his mother like knocks and interrupts his like sexual release his privacy his like uh his well uh, yeah which then is like this little jokey microcosm of the whole movie like the moment of sexual release interrupted stopped prevented um through this kind of like familial reassertion of power yeah yeah (laughs) yeah no like it's a it's a like punchline but it's also like it serves the thematics of the movie too i find it interesting and also like predicts the ending which kind of like um is also about like a moment of sexual unfulfillment yo the ending fucking set me i was so fucking mad (laughs) i'm a rube i'm a rube so i was just like watching that shit and i was like they're in love like holy shit like this is so beautiful like i was just like completely sold by it and yeah like iraqi's like talent in showing the kind of like chemistry between these two characters and building it up in a way that you can like feel this loving connectivity which is on its face totally artificial it's a fictional film right um but it to mirror that you have two adolescent um boys who who are broadly inexperienced and themselves are being enveloped and overwhelmed by these kind of like fantasies of of love and then like the punchline i was just like i'm a rube like i can't believe you've done this to me gregor hockey yeah no it is like heartbreaking that it like he just he chooses to end it by just totally tossing that like build up out the window it is honestly it's a brilliant move like that kind of uh that he decides to not give anyone what they want that he like is committed to this idea of uh perpetual like emptiness signified by like punchlines yeah yeah and i mean i think it's like a, a a projection forward to the inevitable dissolution of of their relationship which the fantasy projection of their romance cannot attend to cannot accommodate cannot expect well also Uh, i read it as something of like sort of um an acknowledgement of the role of aids like the way that he starts hacking and oh yeah laughing breaks out in a cold sweat like it seems to me to like not that is not the only function is serving, but it, I think it serves to like metaphorize like the way that AIDS cut off so many relationships between like young men who like should have been living like happy lives, happy like fulfilled lives together, and instead watched their partner, their loved one, die in front of them. Like so, there is 
the jokey element and i think there is like a much much darker subtextual element yeah yeah jesus or become a cockroach too or yeah just like turn out to be a vessel for a huge alien cockroach (laughs) yeah yeah uh, what do you what do you make of the alien abduction uh, story? Well, it seems to be like part and parcel of like this idea that like everything is true, that like the cultural ephemera of like the era has been concretized into truth here. Nothing is left behind, and so like of course aliens are abducting people. I dig it. <laughs> Uh, I just kept thinking about, um, I mean, especially, uh, the, the intention of expressing the kind of, like, uh, sudden violence and rupture of, of the AIDS epidemic for, uh, like, gay couples. I also think, like, the alien abduction has a feature to it that, um, that, like, queer people are living in their world and that there that there were heteronormative people who were fundamentally outsiders from a world that they understood who were um, tracking them watching them peering who could who could seize them at any moment to experiment on them uh and cause them harm Mm, yeah i think that's a good read on that okay do you wanna? Uh, do you have any last like thoughts? Uh, too many. Um, I don't know. I I think like, yeah. Uh, I think like the two films were like a really fascinating. Uh, ended up being a really fascinating kind of like reverberation between them. The way in which like each of them are uh trying to de- depict a period, and the way each of them kind of like understand uh adolescent and mass cultures uh, and popular culture, uh, especially as it relates to like the interior lives, troubles and like contradictions in the lives of young people as they're coming to age into the, uh, the much less uh, exciting world of adulthood. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, our big question here is does the double feature work? And I'm going to go ahead and say yes. Yeah. I watched these two movies about an hour apart and it was dope. They make a really good pair to like think through adolescence in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're, they're like perfect, uh, a perfect double feature. Like I would book this, I would program this definitely. Okay. Well, there you have the verdict. Two great movies, one great double feature. Hell yeah. Uh, and do you want to talk about the exciting news that we have? So the exciting news is that we are preparing a Patreon. Um, I'll speak on my own behalf. I'm a poor loser, and I have short and few talents, one of which is that I've seen like a lot of movies, and I like to talk about them. Uh, If you like to listen to me and Eva do this, um, we'll be posting the Patreon and offering uh, a bunch of different 
uh, creative rewards for your uh, material support, but we would love to do this uh, every week and talk about movies and share movies with you. Um, we just got to start it and launch it, which if you're listening to this, uh, it should exist. So check out our Twitter at Liquid Movie Pod. Um, and check out my Twitter at no sex underscore no sex. Uh, do you want to add anything, Eva? Yeah, the the podcast Twitter is at Liquid Movie Cast. Uh, Fuck. Listen to my co-host here. I'm um, in the dumbass. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I'm also poor and a loser and have no skills. And, uh... I need to avoid the meds that make me not want to die. So, like, I would appreciate if I could do that while, like, talking about some great movies that I love and some bad movies that are going to be fun to to tear into. Um, Yeah. And my Twitter is at songs underscore enjoyer because that's me. I'm the the songs enjoyer. Um, And I think that's about thank you for listening yeah thanks so much for listening wait we should do a bad movie i really want to talk about movies i hate (laughs) oh yeah yeah no it's we're gonna do bad movie discussion for sure fuck yeah okay cool catch you next week for the movie talk okay sounds good